Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name's Ed Hill and this is the podcast, if you've listened before you already know, dedicated to the journals of my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Campbell Scott, written in the 1840s about his time as an engineer in Europe, firstly as a train driver in Italy and then working in the mint or coin-making industry in Mexico. I would say mint or coin-making industry because I've never really know if people know when you refer to something as the mint, if you immediately realise what I'm talking about, (laughs) rather than the sweets or confectionery, as uh, it might be termed. If you are tuning in again, thanks very much. It's great to have you back and thanks for doing so. It is greatly appreciated. And I hope it's not been too long since the last episode, but um, hopefully you're still happy to tune in. Just to explain where we are in the journals and where we are in the podcasts, the last episode began by William actually describing how he carries out the first trial on one of the steam engines that's been exported from the UK in Milan. So he's there and there's a lot of people around. I think he says 20 to 30,000 people turned up just to see this trial. So it's not even the actual opening. It's literally just the first time he runs the train on a bit of track in Milan. So it opens with that, that episode. And then he then went on to describe Monza, which is where the train's destination is because it goes from Milan to Monza. It's about 10 miles distance. And so we'd got to a point where we was about halfway describing Monza, but that seemed a good point to finish the last episode. So this episode will begin by him finishing off describing Monza and uh, then going back to Milan and commenting on a number of other things. It does actually finally finish with him describing the actual proper grand opening of the railway, which was on August the 17th, 1840. So that's the actual official grand opening day. And at the end of this next episode, you will hear him doing that. Just to mention, which I do at the beginning of every podcast, if you do want to contact me regarding anything that you've listened to that's raised your interest or even angered you in some way, you can contact me via the Twitter page dedicated to the podcast, and that is Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour. There's also a YouTube channel, so if you Google that in the YouTube search engine, that should come up. It mainly comes up with the episodes as audio files, but there is a video there now of me explaining some of the background of the podcast, and um, I'm hoping to do a few more of those quite soon. 
and there's a Facebook page if you want to join that. You can also contact me through that if you wish, which is um, at Grand Tour with my great great granddad. There's a Mastodon account which is uh, GG Grand Tour. That's at scotted at universadon.com. Just to mention on the Twitter, sorry, X, isn't it? It's X account, X. Although now it seems to be saying Twitter X. Maybe Mr. Musk just hasn't been able to roll back that tide of uh, people liking to call something Twitter. The trouble is when you Google it, I either put in X and then other things come up. So I still end up putting in Twitter and now it says Twitter X. I don't know. Anyway, uh, yeah, that uh, address there, sorry, it's when I say 3G Grand Tour, it's a number 3, 3G Grand Tour. It'd be great to get any feedback at all. Lately, you've had some quite good interactions with the people just saying they like the podcast, but I'm perfectly happy to get into deeper discussion if you want. Anything along those lines would be welcome. I hope you will feel inclined to do so. And just finally to say that the podcast is available on all podcast platforms, basically. So if you Google it, it'll come up either on Acast or on um, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Deezer, whatever podcast platform you happen to use, it should be there. This episode, as I say, begins with William finishing off his description of Monza and then he goes back to Milan and uh, there's a big festival event there that he describes and then it finishes with him describing the official opening of the railway. By this time there are two engines that are ready to take to the track, the Lombarda and the Milano, both built by J.G. Rennie of London. I hope you enjoy this episode. Just to mention, we're coming up to the 25th, which will be next one after this, so it's quite a landmark, and I've got a special episode arranged for that one, which um, you'll hear about later at the end of this episode. Let's kick off with William describing the, well, they're the sort of gardens, public plantations, I suppose you'd call it, public gardens of Monza. The Vavaya della Pianta, or plant nursery, are large gardens and nurseries belonging to the government, situated close to the railway station, and containing immense numbers of trees and plants of every description, fruit and forest trees, flowering shrubs, curious and delicate plants, fine preserves for fish, bordered by fences of privet, kept and cut in a more regular manner, large conservatories, mounds of rock for alpine plants, and water for those suited to that element the whole kept in such a clean and exact order as to excite universal approbation and to well repay a long and careful visit. The city of Monza is nearly circular in form and was formerly walled around with fortified towers at intervals. There was one period eight gates, but they have all disappeared except two. One of them is still a respectable edifice of ancient days. Only a small portion of the wall is left standing. A gravel terrace runs along it, bordered by trees, and is a favourite resort of the Monzonians in fine weather. Monza is a place much frequented by the peasantry of the neighbourhood on Sundays and festivals, and you may frequently see them on those days, passing along the streets in large droves, telling their beads and chanting over their prayers as they arrive from and depart to their respective villages. 
A great quantity of silk is also raised in this neighbourhood, and some small quantity is manufactured here, as well as a considerable quantity of coarse woolen yarn, peasants' hats, gloves and stockings. There are also some very excellent schools for both males and females, Monza enjoying a very high reputation for those institutions. And the expense of living is considered lower than in any other part of Lombardy, or I might say, rather, was. For since the opening of the railway, such has been the influx of visitors to that previously dull place, that the Monzonians have made a pretty considerable thing of it, and contrived to raise the price of every article of food at least equal to any other part of the country. Monzonians are very civil and attentive to strangers, but at the same time they are regular Yankees, and if you have not cut your eye teeth, that expression means if you're easily fooled, and if you have not cut your eye teeth, they will walk into your pocket before you are the least aware of them. And having mentioned all that I think worthy of notice, I shall at present take leave of the old city where I have spent so many happy hours. Seems a good point to stop while William mentions the happy times that he spent in Monza. I'm just going to say a few more things about Monza, but nothing particularly profound. Its history does date back to Roman times, apparently. There are Roman remains. It seems that its fortunes as a town really took off thanks to Queen Theodolinda, who we mentioned in the previous podcast, the uh, the wife of Kings Autorio and Agluf. She was named as the Queen of the Lombards, but apparently she had some dream about uh, where a good place to set up a court would be, and she chose Monza. And apparently the name Monza originates from her saying yes in this dream, so it's kind of a combination of the word, the Roman word for Monza and yes. <laughs> Sounds a bit convoluted, but anyway, Monza is called that because when this vision was sent to her to decide where she was going to set up her court... She said yes. Yes! <laughs> and she had a chapel built there dedicated to John the Baptist. And this is a really old, as I say, really old medieval history. So it's sort of 603 we're talking about here, really, really early. And basically, it was quite an important location geographically because it's on the River Lambro and stuff like that. But it's still quite close to Milan. And over the years, there were these rivalries between Milan and uh, Monza. Sometimes Monza had more independence from Milan and sometimes it didn't but it did become this is dating back to the 12th century frederick the first barbarossa he was crowned king of italy in monza and that bolstered its importance in the region in the lombardy region i suppose it would be and william mentions these walls of milan and i think even in his time monza was undergoing a lot of change and the medieval walls had already been demolished as william mentions I think he mentions there's a bit remaining. I think that might be what was called the Porta d'Agrate, which was a medieval bit there. I'm not even sure that's still there. I can't find a modern reference to it. There's a picture of it in the 19th century, but I'm not even sure that's there. But I think that might be the existing bit of the walls that he's talking about that was still around in his time. Funny enough, the coming of the railway has quite an impact on Monza, as William mentions, and it becomes more and more industrial. And William mentions the textile trade being quite important with hats being made and cloth. And it's still actually an important part of its economy today. So that it has a very long history of being involved in the textiles and clothes making trade dating right back to, I suppose you could say almost medieval time. Again, that may well be because of its location and um, apparently silk was grown there a lot. Is silk grown? 
I don't know. <laughs> it's silkworms, isn't it? I just, is it grown or is it? <laughs> does it evolve? I don't know. I'll have to. I'll have to look into more detail about how silkworms actually make silk. But apparently, silk was an important material that was produced in Monza as well. Silk is mainly produced by the silkworm, which is the larva of the silk moth, scientifically referred to as Bombyx mori. The process of silk production is known as sericulture. It typically starts from cultivating silkworms on mulberry leaves. For one kilogram of silk to be produced, 3,000 silkworms must feed on 104 kilograms of mulberry leaves. After feeding, the female silkworm lays three to 400 eggs and insulates them on the leaves of the mulberry tree. Harvesting of silk begins at the stage when the worm starts pupating and spinning its cocoon. To ensure that quality fibre is produced, the silkworm cocoons are dissolved in boiling water, the worms are killed by the heat and the hot water enables the extraction of long fibres. The cocoon is made of raw silk thread of about 1,000 to 3,000 feet long and 0.0004 inches in diameter. Because the process of extracting silk from the cocoon involves killing the larva, sericulture has attracted criticism from animal rights activists. William mentions this garden nursery. I think that's now all part of what is this great big park of Monza, which also includes the villa, which is the Grand Palace, which is this huge public park there. Um, it's one of the biggest in Europe. You know, I think it's bigger than Hyde Park, bigger than parks in um, Paris. But it's a very substantial park and very popular destination for people to go to in the city. This term that William talks about... They're regular Yankees who will dip in... Basically, he's saying they'll fleece you for money if they can get away with it, is what he's saying. And he uses this term, they're regular Yankees. Obviously, there's the geographical reference of what a Yankee person is, particularly being kind of the Northern American person. But also, it became, in William's time, a term for a... What's the word I'm looking for? Sassy, entrepreneurial, clever... Uh, <laughs> slightly tricksy of individual. So Will uses this term Yankee to convey that impression of someone who's a bit, perhaps a bit untrustworthy, uses their guile to make money, that kind of thing. So um, what's the dictionary definition here? Sorry. Yeah, so here's a quote from an urban dictionary about the word Yankee. The characteristics often associated with a stereotypical Yankee are shrewdness, thrift, craftiness, rudeness, arrogance, and loudness. Now, as a British person, we often use the term yank in a slightly derogatory way. So William is probably, I suppose, using it in that sense. But added to this is this extra dimension of being thrifty and crafty and shrewd. So it's, it's not just the objectionable loudness of their voices, their arrogance and rudeness. <laughs> Incidentally, if you want to know the uh, Cockney rhyming slang for yank, it's septic, because it's septic tank yank. <laughs> the reason I've gone on quite a lot about this is because he does use it quite often in the journals with this meaning in mind. So when you hear him say it, it's more often than not meant in this slightly derogatory term, but also with this element of being crafty. Just reading here, its actually origins very much come from Southern Americans referring to North Americans. Abroad, we would probably, I think it says Canadians, Australians, British people would refer to all Americans as, as Yanks. But if you're an American from the South, you probably take objection to that. 
Civil War battle lines run deep. Back to the journal. June 27th. The Festival of Corpus Domini is one that is celebrated with great splendour in all parts of Italy. A grand procession of the priesthood and principal inhabitants always taking place on the occasion in the principal cities and towns. The one in Milan, which I shall attempt to describe, is considered, with the exception of Rome, as the first in that country. In consequence of what I had heard, and the preparations that I had seen made in the principal streets, I went out a very early hour in company with a friend to the cathedral, and from thence along the route the procession was to take to the church of San Ambrogia, and from thence by the route back. Where the streets were wide, large wood columns covered with white and red cloth and gold tinsel supported by a canopy of cloth of the same colours had been placed. Also, festoons of the same material stretching along the sides suspended across at regular intervals. In those cases where the streets were narrow, the covering was fastened to the houses and adorned with the festoons similar to the other parts. The houses themselves, very few of which are without projecting balconies, had both these and the windows hung with rich silks, velvets and tapestries. Those who possessed pictures and paintings of celebrated men or of sacred subjects had them all hung out on the front row of the houses. The churches also that stood along the line of the procession were hung with ancient tapestry and many of the fine paintings that adorned the interiors which were movable were placed on their fronts. Previous to my visit to Milan I had frequently heard it spoken of as a very rich city and I must say that I have never seen a scene of such splendour exhibited on a scale so large as on that occasion. The distance of the whole line could not be less than from four to five miles and along the whole distance the inhabitants appeared to vie with each other in exhibiting all they possessed that was of a nature to please the eye or give effect to the scene. Some of the noblemen's palaces exhibited vast quantities of plate, and along the Contrada di Oro, where the gold and silversmiths and the jewellers reside, the show was gorgeous indeed. Having secured an excellent situation for viewing the procession itself, I took my seat, and had not waited many minutes before it made its appearance. There are, I believe, sixty churches in Milan, and there are not less than four priests to any of those churches. Some of them a great many more, with choristers, boys to wait on the priests at the celebration of the Mass, and many other officers. When it came to the procession, first walked the principal male inhabitants of each parish, having red capes over their shoulders, and some of them broad sashes, bareheaded, and each carrying an enormous wax candle burning. Then came the choristers of each parish, chanting the service of the day, then the priests, the youngest walking first, then two boys bearing the censers burning incense, and lastly the silver cross of each church, on each side of which was borne two immense silver candlesticks with wax tapers burning. Each parish walked in procession by itself, its own inhabitants, its choristers, its priests, its censers of incense, and its cross. When those had passed came the choristers of the cathedral, and they were not less than one hundred in number, then the secular offices of that establishment, then the priests, about fifty in number, twelve boys bearing censers of incense, the cross and the candlesticks, the embroidered banner with the figure of San Ambrogia upon it, then the Archbishop of Milan under the canopy of crimson velvet and gold mentioned on a former occasion, and bearing a large gold cup with a cover of the same material. 
he was followed by at least a dozen servants in splendid liveries. Then came the royal guard in rich uniforms and carrying at their sides halberds. So that's a long pike with an axe-type thing on the end. The upper part of them decorated with ribbons and flowers. In the midst of these walked His Highness the Viceroy, bareheaded and carrying a wax candle, followed by his aide-de-camp and suite. Then the Lieutenant Governor of Lombardy. Then the military commander-in-chief and his suite. William uses this word suite quite a lot on these occasions, and it's not the uh, room in a hotel. It's in the sense of... Well, the official definition is a group of people in attendance on a monarch or other person of high rank. All the other officials, military and civil, a greater number of the nobility, followed by their servants in rich liveries. Lastly came a long string of carriages, empty. The royal carriage, drawn by six handsome bay horses, with large plumes of feathers on their head, and housings of scarlet and silver. The carriage was also attended by six outriders, but this affair, though a very elegant turnout, was spoilt and rendered completely grotesque by the postillion. So that's the coach driver. Fancy to yourself, gentle reader, a great, fat, stupid, heavy-looking German, weighing 14 or 15 stone, with a long-tailed coat on, an immense cock hat, and boots reaching to the extreme upper part of the thigh, like those worn by fishermen or ditchers, and then tell me the effect of all this. I recollect that it was with the greatest difficulty that I could abstain from bursting into a laugh on the occasion. Some of the carriages of the nobility were very handsome, but the most of them was either of French or English manufacture. The procession was finally closed by a party of mounted gendarmes, and altogether occupied one hour and a half in passing the spot where I was. After this, High Mass was celebrated at the cathedral and of the church of San Ambrogia. In the evening there was processions in the different parishes, consisting chiefly of children and females, the priests of the respective places acting the lion on this occasion. So that just means they were acting the, or being the most important person. The hall of the churches also were illuminated in the evening, and as the day finally closed, as it generally does on these occasions, there was an adjournment to the theatres the whole of which was filled by crowds, and certainly not the most silent of audiences. So I just thought I'd say a little bit about this uh, Corpus Domini, or Corpus Christi, day of celebration, that uh, William is describing here. I imagine anyone who's Catholic listening to this uh, podcast will know much more about it. To this day, it's a very important festival in the Roman Catholic Church, basically, and it's a bit of a movable feast or, or, or festival, a bit like Easter. Uh, I think it comes is it just after Lent or something. Anyway, I'm not sorry, I forgive my <laughs> lack of knowledge. Corpus Christi is a movable feast celebrated on the Thursday after Trinity Sunday, 60 days after Easter, for the description of the day is the solemnity of the most holy body and blood of Christ. So it's basically the celebration of the, the Eucharist, the drinking of the wine and the breaking of the bread. And um, it's a kind of special festival day related to that particular Christian religious ceremony. And, uh, you know, it's very widely recognised throughout all Christian churches, really, but I suppose you would say particularly in catholic churches 
and in terms of the procession that William's describing here, its origins really come from 13th century Belgium because a canoness or nun called Juliana of Liège was the one who started the idea of holding this this festival. Apparently she had several visions where Christ came to her and said it would be a good idea to celebrate this act of worship and... Uh, Obviously, there's the whole question of transubstantiation involved as well amongst various churches. But anyway, Giuliani of Liège was the one who wanted to, or initially thought of the idea of having a day of celebration around the Eucharist. And uh, she had this vision of Christ over several years, I think, telling her that she should be doing this. And apparently she also had one where she saw a sort of vision of the full moon, but... Within that full moon, there was a sort of dark patch, and that marked the lack of a celebration day in the lunar hole image that she was seeing. So, um, the lack of solemnity. So, solemnity is another way of saying a, a festival. Anyway, she had the initial idea, and then it was later taken up by the wider Catholic Church and granted permission and backing by various popes and so it became a festival that's now widely celebrated amongst catholics particularly and as william's describing it um i think you would call it the folk tradition of hanging stuff on the outside of your houses seems to have been something that developed as part of this celebration and uh, flags and banners and things like this which is obviously very much what william's describing here in milan so uh, that's basically it other than uh, he has this particular thing about this poor german um postillion who he seems to particularly mark out for his his attire and his uh hilarious garb um <laughs> which i don't know it seems a bit unfair because describe him as a big fat german on top of this carriage because from what I can see, his description of the sort of dress that postillions wore, things like these great big high above-the-knee boots, thigh-high boots, is that word? Thigh-high boots? I don't know. don't hear the word thigh-high, do you? Knee-high, <laughs> ankle-high, thigh-high? <laughs> anyway, these very long boots, a bit like waders, as he describes them, that um, fishermen would wear. Or ditchers. I might look up what a ditcher was. I can imagine what a ditcher was. Probably someone who dug ditches and they were wet and muddy. So they had big boots. But from what I can see, generally, of the attire that postillions wear, I've got an illustration of an English postillion, which is a sort of caricature. And, well, he looks quite similar to the one that William's describing here. So, <laughs> singling out the German. <laughs> an early example of anti-German <laughs> sentiment there from... Uh, from William, I don't know. So basically, that's it. Corpus Christi, or Corpus Domini, as William refers to it. It's the this very big celebration day that's still very widely celebrated, particularly in terms of processions and things in Catholic countries to the day. I suppose, being an Anglican or Protestant middle-class person who's a bit less aware of it in that time but uh, it is celebrated in the anglican church obviously not perhaps to the degree that it is in the roman catholic church but there we are obviously it's the splendor of the day and what does sound like it, like it was a very rich and colorful scene which william's describing
August 17th. The opening of the railway took place on this day, and as the court was at the same time residing at Monza, it was determined that the first train should start from that station. I accordingly proceeded there the evening previous, taking up the engine Lombarda and a number of carriages, amongst which was one that had been purchased by and was the private property of His Highness the Viceroy. This was a very tasty affair, capable of holding eighteen persons, painted a dark colour and richly gilt, and having the royal arms emblazoned thereon. The lining and cushions were of drab cloth, ornamented with crimson silk bows, there being also curtains of the same material. Early in the morning the engine Milano arrived, bringing one of the military bands and a number of the police. Ten o'clock was the time appointed for the first train to proceed to Milan, and a few minutes before that hour the carriages arrived from the palace. The Viceroy was the first to make his appearance, and he was greeted by loud and long-continued cheers by the multitude assembled. He was accompanied by the Vice-Queen, his sons and daughters, by the Lieutenant Governor Conte de Larme, the Earl of Larme, and a very numerous and splendid suite. The Bishop of Monza and a great number of the clergy had previously arrived to receive the royal party and pronounce the customary benediction in this country on all undertakings of a similar nature. The royal party, having viewed the interior of the buildings and expressed their satisfaction upon all the arrangements, next proceeded to the open yard where the engines and carriages were in waiting. And the scene at this moment was very splendid. Every spot where a view could be obtained was crowded with spectators. Banners were displayed in every direction. The band struck up an enlivening air, and loud and vociferous cheers again broke forth from the assembled multitude. At once the music ceased playing, and in a moment every head was uncovered. The bishop pronounced his benediction, and the engine and train moved away amidst salvos of artillery, the ringing of bells, and the sound of military music. We were obliged to move very slowly, as the line was laying on the level ground, and not fenced in, same as the English ones. The line was crowded with spectators from one end to the other, and throughout the whole distance the cheering and waving of handkerchiefs continued, for both the inhabitants of Milan and Monza, with those of other towns and villages for many miles around, looked upon it as the dawn of a new era amongst them, and old and young men, women and children, crowded to every spot where they could get a glance of the passing train. At Milan, a large gallery had been erected across the end of the line, and on our arrival we found it filled with the beauty and fashion of the vicinity. In the midst of them stood, conspicuous by his splendid robes, the Cardinal Archbishop of Milan, and behind him stood a great number of his clergy, all the principal authorities of the city, military and civil, and many of the nobility. After the Viceroy and the rest of the party had descended from the carriages and taken a view of the station workshops, etc., the Archbishop pronounced his blessing on the undertaking, and at that the whole party ascended to the Grand Saloon to partake of a splendid repast, and the day was concluded in festivity and rejoicing. I thought I'd stop here. Obviously, it's the grand opening of the uh, railway, so uh, it's a very important affair for the local people and all the dignitaries of Milan and Lombardy, Venetia. So all the great and the good have turned up, and uh, it's quite a colourful scene that William paints there. I just thought I'd say a couple of things about this. I have to do a bit more research to see if there's anything about the actual day. I've found several things where August the 17th is referenced, but uh, much more detail than William's written about the actual day uh, I haven't really found. But I just thought I'd mention this thing describing the 
Viceroy's carriage because he, he he mentions the word uh, the cushions were covered in drab cloth, which I thought, oh, Archduke doesn't sound too grand, does it? <laughs> um, but I didn't realise that the word drab literally comes from a type of cloth that was called drab, which was sort of grey or brown, you know, drab colour. <laughs> um, I didn't actually realise that's where the word comes from. So when you say something is drab, generally these days means it's a bit boring or whatever you want to call it. Not very colourful, not very interesting, whatever it may be we're talking about. But the actual word comes from a type of cloth that was a woollen cloth. I think it was mainly woven in Yorkshire, but it was a kind of brown or grey colour sometimes used in army uniforms and things. So the Archduke's coach and cushions may have been drab in colour, but I'm sure they were a lot grander inside. And it did actually make me think a little bit about just carriages. I think at a later date I'd like to go into this a bit more in detail. But just to say at this point, obviously very early on the railways, the initial railway carriages really took their design and inspiration from stagecoach carriages so they look very similar and you'll see these sort of design motifs and similarities between the two that's adopted in the design of the early carriages and then of course as years progress and technology progresses the railway carriage evolves into something much more its own affair really and particularly the introduction of longer cars particularly the introduction of uh the Pullman coach from America, which seems to have been quite revolutionary in uh, its design. There's one or two examples of pictures of royal coaches. I think there's one in the York Museum, I think. Uh, certainly seen pictures of it, of um, Queen Adelaide's railway carriage. And that has four wheels. And again, you can really see the influence of the stagecoach on it. In fact, there's even a point at the front where there's the guardsman would sit a bit like the driver of a stagecoach and he generally actually would have in his hand the manual brake for stopping the carriage or coach or wagon whatever you want to call it but if you see a picture of that railway carriage you can immediately see the connection between a stagecoach carriage and a railway carriage queen adelaide she was the first member of the british royal family to travel on a railway that was in 1842, and um, this coach was made by the, I think it's the, the Midland Railway, especially for her, the London and Midland Railway. Queen Adelaide had been the wife of William the Fourth, but by this time he had died, and Queen Victoria was now on the throne. She was described as the Queen Dowager, but you know she was still a well-respected member of the royal family. And then I think Queen Victoria herself travels on a railway a couple of years later uh, but apparently she wasn't a particularly keen fan of railways coming back to the milan monza line and the railway there when it first opened i've got an illustration of the train that i think was drawn around the time and it does show this combination of open top carriages with people just sitting in them and closed carriages and interestingly there's a third one which is almost like a kind of um, double decker these are all four-wheel carriages but on this uh, last one i think it's the last one in the picture on the train there's the the main carriage and then a similar coach type seating area and shape above it directly sitting on top of it so uh, 
I don't know whether that was somewhere for guards to sit or because I kind of think, how would they have accessed it? I suppose there might have been a little ladder. It's kind of a little, almost like a little pod thing sitting on top of the, uh, I imagine, first class carriage, which is the last in the line of, I think there's four carriages pictured in it. A lot of these um, illustrations are put up on the Twitter page, etc. So uh, you can see them. The other thing I should mention is that this whole development of railway carriages is absolutely also imbued, I suppose, is that the word I'm looking for, with the state of class and society at that time. So, you know, you had first class, second class, third class. And uh, I think I read somewhere someone said the classes were first class, you had a nice coach and you were covered. Second class, you might be covered, but you generally weren't. You just sat on a railway carriage that was exposed to the open air. And third class basically meant you walked. <laughs> but uh, the railway carriage in those early days, of course, it was, they were mainly wooden framed. They didn't have particularly good suspension or, or any suspension. So they were pretty rickety affairs. I've even read somewhere whether this was actually proven. I don't know, but um, it was practice to sit the passengers, the second class passengers, close to the engine in case, and third class passengers, in case there was an explosion. And um, it was all right if they got killed. <laughs> and the higher members of society sat in the more comfortable coaches further away from the engine, which were A, safer if the engine did blow up, and B, a bit more comfortable because they were further away from the engine and a bit less uh, rackety. Later on in the journals, William talks a bit more about the passengers, so I think that would be a good point to say a bit more about this. But obviously it's a fantastic day, and we've seen in the previous episode a lot of people turned up for just the trials of the train, but this was the actual official opening, so of course it was a, a much grander affair. William talks of the train and the opening being blessed by the archbishop and uh, i've got quite a nice illustration of a similar ceremony happening on a railway around a similar time in france so you know there's the crowd there and there's the archbishop with his arms aloft <laughs> giving the lord's blessing to this uh, railway undertaking i suppose like a ship or a aircraft sometimes you know certainly ships God bless her and all who sail in her. And undoubtedly, the same would apply to um, trains of that era as well. <laughs> I think maybe given, I think, some of the safety issues around them, you certainly probably had to say a little bit of a prayer before you got on one <laughs> to make sure you got off at the other end okay. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, uh, you know, maybe a, a bit of divine assistance wouldn't go amiss. Back to William and the journal. <laughs> I shall now endeavour to give a short sketch of this railway, the first that was projected and executed in Italy. As I've mentioned several times before in the podcast, it wasn't actually the first railway in Italy, it was the second one. There was one that was built from Porcini to Naples, slightly shorter I think, but uh, that was about a year before that was opened, but obviously William wasn't to know that at this time. 
communication really wasn't uh, as swift as it is today so it's totally reasonable for them to have thought it was the first in Italy it certainly was the first in northern Italy the railway was constructed at the sole expense of one individual Signor de Puzzi I think his name is actually Giovanni Puzza a banker of the city of Padua but who sold it on completion to a company at Vienna it was originally intended to form part of the Grand Line from Milan to Venice, but that plan has been abandoned, and the Venice Railway, instead of going by Monza and Bergamo, will be by the way of Traviglio and Lodi to Brescia. The distance from Milan to Monza is about ten miles. With the exception of three-quarters of a mile at the Monza end, it is on an incline, the station at Monza being nineteen English yards higher than that at Milan. It is, with the exception of a short distance at each end, a single line, but the company possesses the ground for making it a double one, should circumstances ever acquire it. The station is situated at a short distance from the ramparts and about midway betwixt Porta Nuova and Porta Comasino. The principal edifice is a large and fine building of three storeys in height, above the ground, and extensive vaults below, used for storing of coal, coke, oil, etc., this structure was erected from the designs of Giovanni Sarti of Milan. Um, I think he designed the whole railway, actually. The entrance is by an open portico of fine arches. On the left, as you enter, is the office for tickets, and in front of you are two waiting saloons for first- and second-class passengers. A passage is betwixt the two to the yard, through which the third-class's passengers enter. Another example of keeping the great unwashed away from the rest of higher society. <laughs> the waiting rooms are handsomely fitted up, with commodious seats furnished with cushions. The ceiling is vaulted, and a finely executed cornice runs below the vaulting. Over the fireplace of the first-class saloon hangs the portrait of the Viceroy, and over the other that of the Emperor Ferdinand. In a number of panels around the rooms are emblematical paintings and bas-reliefs, representing the four seasons sculpture painting mechanics agriculture a locomotive engine and the busts of archimedes watt fulton and stevenson above the waiting saloons is another the size of them both with handsome columns pilasters cornice and the walls painted in imitation of marble and executed in a style which has deceived numbers of people in fancying it real at one end of the building are the offices of the engineer the secretary, the inspector, and the storekeeper. The other end of the building is appropriated to a café, an indispensable object in this country. At a short distance also is a large and commodious hotel. The workshops and engine house are opposite the principal edifice. There are three entrances and a corresponding number of turnplates. The workshops are small and inconvenient, and not at all adapted for the purpose. When I arrived at Milan, they were but just commenced, and were carried forward against my repeated remonstrances. The architect had never seen a railway, or a station, or even a locomotive engine, but for all that he knew, according to his own opinion, much better what was wanted than I did. But this is just the way with Signor Italiano, for if he can only get a small place, and a little authority, they fancy themselves the cleverest and cunningest creature in the world." Oh dear, even John Mexican himself, and he is a knowing customer, half Indian and half Spaniard, can't fit to hold a candle to them. Right, so I'm going to stop here with William and his slightly anti-Italian views and uh, 
slightly anti-Mexican ones as well. Well, I don't know, slightly, perhaps profoundly, <laughs> profoundly anti-Italian and Mexican views. But it's a good point to stop here because after this, William then describes the actual run or layout of the track, but he does it in a way as if you, the reader, are accompanying him on the footplate of the train. So as we go around this bend, you'll see to your left this magnificent hotel and you know so it's a slightly authorial way of describing the railway line that he then proceeds to do actually just to note that this station that william's describing at port nuova the building is actually still there it's now a luxury hotel be nice to go inside it and see if there are any of these um decorative things that he alludes to such as the um images of the four seasons and uh, the archduke are still there and the uh, images of stevenson and other pioneers that he mentions you'd think they might theme it with its legacy of railway history but um that's definitely somewhere i'd like to visit if i do ever get the chance to get to milan so this has been quite an eventful episode again beginning as we did with William's description of Monza or parts of Monza and then of course there was the big procession of Corpus Christi or Corpus Domini and then again this other big event the actual official opening of the Monza to Milan or Milan to Monza railway and as we can see that was obviously like a really big affair and very well attended by the local people as William himself acknowledges they recognise this as a new era for the country. And indeed, from what I've read, the impact of this railway in terms of economics, certainly to the Monza area, was quite dramatic and it soon led to more, not only architectural changes, but industrial changes to that area and that town and its economy and that bit of Milan. And then, of course, then that was recognised throughout the rest of uh, Italy and uh, generally as railways spread so i hope you've enjoyed this episode there's the usual ways of contacting me that i mentioned at the beginning of this podcast through um, twitter and facebook and other social networking ways etc now i'd just like to mention at this point that the next episode of the podcast is the 25th one and I'm very pleased to say that I've managed to arrange an interview, which we've already done, with Anthony Dawson, who is a railway historian and very much specialises in this era of the railways. And it really is a fascinating talk. And there's a lot of things that William mentions in the uh, journals that we discuss about the railway and actually more generally about travel and the spread of the railways and their impact on Europe at this time. So I really would encourage you to listen to that next episode. Anthony really knows his subject very well and sheds a lot of light on certain things that I didn't know about. So um, it's certainly very informative. So I hope you can tune into that one, particularly if you're interested in, in railways and the early development of railways around the Europe and the world really 
because it does help to illuminate what was going on at that time. So that's something to look forward to in the next episode. But as regards to this one, that's the end of it. So um, I do hope you've enjoyed listening to it. As I say, the next one will be the one with uh, Anthony and myself discussing railways. And then the one after that will begin with William doing this description of the line as if you were a passenger accompanying him on the train. That's it for now. If you have been, thanks for listening. Thank you.